All right, so we're looking at the book of Joel tonight as we continue to look at these books that most people don't really know all that well. If you didn't get grab some notes, you can. That'll help you keep up with where I am. Uh, so the first question, who was Joel? Well, we don't know. There's literally no information about him in the Bible except his name and his father's name, and that doesn't help us much. The name Joel is Yael in Hebrew. It means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Um, so we think, based on what he wrote, that he was a prophet based in Judah sometime after the northern kingdom was invaded and scattered. Although not all scholars agree on that. Uh, and certainly, well, I tell you what, when you read the commentaries, scholars are all over the place on when this book was written. It's funny to read. Uh, you know, some think it was way after the exile, and some think it was way before, and some, some are in between, so we don't know for sure. Uh, and that's okay. That's not our entrance, entrance exam into heaven. But what is important is, this is a book about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a, is a topic that is discussed in the Old Testament several times. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Zephaniah all talk about it next week. Next week when we look at Amos, we'll, we'll see some of the things he said. Um, and Joel talks about the day of the Lord five different times. This, this is probably the book that talks about it the most. In fact, that's what the book is about. And when you hear the day of the Lord, you hear that term. I know when I first started reading the Bible for myself as a young adult, I just assumed it was talking about Judgment Day, the final judgment when we stand before the judgment seat of God. But when you read the Old Testament, you see that it can mean several things. It can mean something that happens right now. And so I believe that when the Old Testament prophets use the term of the day of the Lord, what they're saying is when God shows up, when God intervenes in human history, either for uh, judgment or salvation, but when God breaks in and changes things, when God shows up, you might say. And the reason this book is written, Joel is prophesying during a time of natural disaster, when the, na the nation is hurting. They've just experienced a plague of locusts, and Joel, Joel writes to explain to the people, here's why this is happening, and here's what's going to happen next, so you need to be ready. Now, for us as Christians, we need, to, we need to look at the book of Joel as a reminder that God's at work all the time around us. We usually don't see what He's doing, but when we see unusual circumstances in our lives, we always need to ask, what is God up to? We won't always know. We need to have faith, but we always need to be aware He is working. And we need to, not, uh, we need to number one, not lose heart when our circumstances are bad. And number two, not miss opportunities to learn and grow from those circumstances. So there you can, I think, divide the book of Joel up into five sections. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. I'll just read little bits of each section so you can get a taste of what the book's about. So you can, from now on, when you hear about the book of Joel, you'll know. Oh yeah, I remember what that's about. Because you won't forget a single thing I say tonight, will you? You'll remember every single word. Who are we kidding? I won't remember next week what I said. But... Number one, the, the first section is about the locust plague itself. The first 20 verses, you might say, are about the locust plague that had hit Judah. Uh, verse 4 says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. That's kind of a picture of what it was like to be alive in Judah. Remember, you're living in a, in a country where everyone 
made their living from the land, or if you made your living in some other way, you were dependent on people who made their living from the land. So if a, a bad harvest came, then everybody was hurting. If, if there was a freeze, if there was a plague of locusts, most of all, that was, that was disastrous. Uh, so what he's talking about is, you know, a swarm of locusts comes. And by the way, I, I need to point out, we hear locust swarm and we think of the Bible. But did you know there's actual locust swarms that are devastating Africa right now and have been for three, three years in a row? You can Google it, you can look it up online, and you'll see uh, West Africa, especially the Horn of Africa, is having a really, really hard time with this. Uh, a single swarm of locusts can contain as much as 10 billion individual insects. That's billion with a B. That's a lot of bugs. And by the way, I, I looked it up online and they look like those big yellow grasshoppers we used to get when I was a kid. I think the fire ants took care of them sometime between my childhood and now because I don't see those anymore. One good thing about fire ants, right? But uh, they were good for fishing though. I'm off on a tangent, you know? Um, but yeah, imagine those big grasshoppers that big and imagine 10 billion of them swarming down on your land. And you make a living uh, growing grain or growing grapes, and suddenly it's all gone like that. A swarm that size can eat in a single day what 40,000 people would eat in a year. Think about that. So when you talk about locust swarm, uh, locust plagues, that's what we're talking about. So for, for Judah, it was a matter of the way it's described in verse 4. If you were a farmer and the locusts came and then they went, and you said to yourself, oh, goodness, I'm so glad I made it. And then here comes another one. Sort of like COVID, wasn't it? Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I'm okay. Oh, no, here it comes again. And it came back three separate times. So you can imagine how that must have been. Um, in chapter 1, and we won't read all of this, we'll read one part of it, Joel is calling on four different groups of people to weep. He says, old men, you need to weep. Tell your children, in fact. Tell your children, this is what is happening. Sort of like uh, you know, Deuteronomy 6 says, tell your children about the laws of God and the name of God. Well, this is kind of the reverse of that. Tell, the children, tell your children, this is why this is happening. He says, uh, and interestingly, he says, all you drunks need to weep. Oh, you lovers of wine. Well, why? Well, because there's no wine anymore. You've been living high on the hog. You've been living as if there's no tomorrow. You've been living as if your, your good times will never end, and now the, the good times are gone. Now it's all dried up. He calls on priests to mourn and weep. We'll, we'll look at that next. But the reason why is nobody can offer sacrifices anymore because the drink offering was a part of the sacrifice, and there's no wine. There's no oil because olives... Olive trees have been eaten up. And of course, animals are dying because there's nothing for them to graze. And then he says, farmers need to weep. The farmer was the most important person in that community. And now they can't make a contribution. They can't help their neighbors because they have nothing to offer. So the lesson for us, is, and this is something I need to say, Joel is a prophet of God. None of us are, unless you have the gift of prophecy that I don't know about. So when natural disasters occur in our community or in our world, you need to be careful. Don't assume you know what God's up to. Don't be like the TV preachers who said that New Orleans had Hurricane Katrina because it's such a sinful city. Well, does that mean Houston got it several years later because we were a sinful I mean, where do you end with that? Uh, God, if God tells you what He's up to, that's fine. 
but otherwise don't assume. Remember, Jesus in Luke 13 was asked, what about those people who uh, that tower fell on? And what did Jesus say? He said, don't you worry about them. You better get right with the Lord or something like that might happen to you. Don't, don't assume. Uh, John 9, there's the story of uh, the disciples finding uh, the, the man born blind. Oh, Lord, was it him or his parents that sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it's neither. This is done so that the name of God might be glorified. So when disasters hit, I think this is a good guide. When disasters hit, instead of running around and assigning blame, God's people should be running around helping people, loving our neighbors. All right, verse 13. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. I think it's, I, I just wanted to highlight that God is calling on the priests to throw off, basically throw off their priestly garments. The things that mark them out as spiritual leaders and to wear the, the garment of mourning. And I think this is God's way of saying, you're, you're quote-unquote holy men, but you need to be just as upset about this as your neighbors. You're not farmers, and they're still tithing probably, so you're doing fine, but you better get down and weep alongside them. In fact, he says, pass the night in sackcloth. Weep all night long. We should bear one another's burdens. Verse 20, the locust plague wasn't the only problem. Look at verse 20. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. Because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So when it says fire is devoured, it's probably not talking about literal fire, although it could be. You know, when a, when a locust horde hits, it looks like it's been burned. It's, it's just barren. So that, that may be what he's talking about. But that first sentence, water brooks are dried up. That tells us it wasn't just a locust plague, it was also a drought. So kind of a perfect storm has hit Judah at this time. So that's the first section. Now we jump to the second, the coming invasion. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. When he says blow a trumpet, he's talking about the shofar, the ram's horn. And that was used for two things. It was used for, uh, for calling people to worship, and it was used also calling people to battle. It was sort of like an air raid siren in the ancient world. You heard the shofar and it wasn't a holy day. You knew, oh, I better grab my sword or grab my pitchfork at the least and get ready to defend myself. Why? because the locust plague was just a foretaste of what was to come. Now there's going to be an invasion, an invasion, as we find out later, from the north. And again, because we don't know when this was written for sure, we don't know for certain which army we're talking about. My guess is it's Babylon. Other people think it's Assyria. Either way, he's saying they're going to invade. This is, this is coming. You need to watch out. And think about it. If you know the book of Deuteronomy very well. You know that in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, Moses goes through this long list of here's all the things that'll happen if you wander from God. And what does he mention? He mentions plagues. He mentions droughts. He mentions invasion. All these things are coming if you wander from the Lord. 
So the people couldn't say they hadn't been warned. They'd been warned centuries before. But it's, it's just a, a lesson to us in human nature and human sin nature. We may know exactly what's going to happen. We're like that little kid. We know that if we, if we disobey our parents, we're going to get swatted, and we do it anyway. Uh, the, the little kid who knows if he touches the oven, it's going to burn his hand, and he touches it anyway. That's human nature. And, and, and we need to see that here in the book of Joel. But look at verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For the camp, His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So here, for a second time in this chapter, it's called the day of the Lord. And He calls it His army, the Lord's army. He's not talking about Israel. He's not talking about Judah. He's talking about these invaders. Isn't that interesting? But it's not unusual. Isaiah 10.5, He calls the Assyrians the rod of His anger. Probably the most godless kingdom in the world. And He calls them the rod of His anger. Uh, Jeremiah 25.9, He calls Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, His servant. And this is before Nebuchadnezzar met Daniel and went insane and then proclaimed God as the one true God. So what this tells us is God can use anybody to accomplish His purposes. God can use a godless army or a godless king to accomplish His purposes. Again, that does not mean that every disaster that happens is God's express will. That doesn't mean that uh, anything any evil ruler of some other country does is God's express will. But we know, we know that even when evil people do evil things, they will be judged, right? The, the thing is, God's will always wins out. And as we see in verse 11, the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a challenge to the proudest, most stubborn humans among us, the people who are the self-made men and women. No, but you can't stand in the face of God. God will humble you when he, when he is in action, when He brings down His judgment. When God intervenes, the proudest are humbled. All right, uh, let's move on to the next section. So section three is where repentance is urged. Repentance. This is the transition. So the first half of the book, first two sections, are all about judgment. This is why this is happening, and this is why that's going to happen. But now we see the transition to hope. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him? Grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. There's that other kind of shofar. That's the trumpet of worship. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Gather the congregation. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So back to verse 12. He says, return to me with all your heart. Tear your hearts, not your garments. Why does he say that? In the ancient world, it was, it was a sign that you were upset to tear your clothes. We don't do that today. and probably get people's attention if you did. 
but that's not what we do. That was a very universal sign of grief, mourning, anger, sorrow. But that could be faked. Like anything religious we do, that could be faked. The most beautiful song ever sung could be sung by someone who doesn't even believe the words they're singing. The best, y'all are going to have a hard time believing this, but the most profound sermon you've ever heard may be preached by someone who doesn't live what he's talking about, whose heart is far from God. Any one of us can go into the house of God on any Sunday morning and we can worship and we can sing and we can give big offerings and we can mean not a single bit of it. And so God is saying, don't just do the outward act. Make sure the repentance is in your heart. Tear your heart. There is a place, there is a place for weeping in the sight of God. And that's something we don't emphasize in church. All of our songs are happy. All of our worship services are meant to make us feel better. But I don't think it's a coincidence that over half the psalms are psalms of complaint. There's a place for mourning before the Lord. And we should, we should mourn before the Lord over our sin. And that's what he's urging them to do. Uh, repentance does not mean I'm sorry. Repentance means turning away. And that's what he's urging here. He also says... Get everybody together, call a solemn assembly. This is a moment when all the people of God gather and just essentially pray and say, okay, Lord, what do we do now? And that's good advice. When our hearts are broken, whatever the occasion might be, when our hearts are broken, we should come together as God's people and pray. We should lift one another up and we should individually and corporately ask the Lord, where are we to go now? You, you must guide us, Lord. You must guide us. Uh, you know, in a, about a month, it'll be the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Y'all remember after that, how many of us that very night gathered in our churches and prayed? And where did that, where did that, uh, that need for God go? I was, you know, distance from that event, and we go, oh, well, we don't need Him that bad. Yeah, we sure do. And who knows when the next event will be that will humble us again. When he says God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, he's quoting Exodus 34, 6. Remember when Moses goes up and God hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes before him and says, let me tell you my name. My name is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, and I'm slow to anger and gracious and compassionate. That's what he's quoting here. That's in many ways the most important verse in the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. It gets quoted over and over again and Joel right here is reminding them, remember who our God is. By the way, back to that solemn assembly. Notice it says, I want old people there. I want the children. I want everybody, even the nursing infants, even the bride and the bridegroom. Because in, in the ancient world, uh, if, if you just got married, you were, you were exempt. You were exempt from uh, you know, military service or from religious feast, but not this one. This is serious enough that you leave your honeymoon and you come and you pray along with the people of God. And then fourth section, the restoration of God's people. So after there's repentance, God restores. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land 
his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. So this is the transition point. If you want to mark the point where the, the book changes, it's right here. In fact, from this point on, it's mostly God speaking instead of Joel speaking. It's mostly God speaking in the first person. And, and he says, you've repented, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor that repentance. I'm going to restore you. When he says, the Lord will become, in verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land. It's kind of an unusual way to put it. But think about being a parent and witnessing your child get bullied. You'd be jealous for that child. You would step up and you would, you would maybe do something that got yourself put in jail, but hopefully you would at least extract your child from that situation. That's what God is saying. I'm, I'm going to be jealous for my child Israel. And he, he mentions, I'm going, to, I'm going to reverse things. I'm going to give you food again, grain, new wine, oil. And I'm going to remove the foreigners, those northerners, from your country. And history shows the, the Assyrian Empire, this devastating empire, killed everything in their sight, like a human locust plague, uh, but they came to an end. Babylon conquered them. And then the Babylonians were so big and strong, and, and they came and conquered Israel, and they, they destroyed the temple. And then along comes Persia, and there's no more Babylon, and there never has been. And then along comes Greece and takes out Persia and so forth, all on down the line, even the Roman Empire, greatest empire in world history. Church outlasted it by thousands of years. So God is faithful. He's all, he, he is not going to let any, any empire, any ruler get the best of him. Verse 25 uh, is my favorite verse in the book of Joel. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Just imagine if you were living in Judah at this time and you'd lost everything. Imagine reading that. Somebody gave you a copy of Joel's scroll or somebody read it to you. And if you had faith, how much encouragement that would bring you to know God has guaranteed. He is essentially, this is, this is God, the insurance adjuster, showing up and saying, I'm going to give you back everything you've lost. And then some. I'm going to restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. And for us today, that's a, that's a promise that we can cling to. I'm going to restore to you what you've lost. There's nothing you will lose that I won't make up for. You know, the promise of Scripture is He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The promise of Scripture is our light and momentary troubles are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And all of us have had some significant losses. But think about the fact that God's going to make up for all of that. There's not a single one that when we get to glory, we'll look back on and say, okay, God, but, but I'm still mad at you about this. No, it will all be restored. It will all we will see that, that God, that those light momentary troubles produced an eternal weight of glory. I can't be more specific than that because I don't know. God knows more than I do about how He's going to restore uh, and what He's going to do for us. Jesus told His disciples, anything you give up on my account, you're going to get back hundredfold. I don't know how you get back hundredfold uh, a loved one who dies before their time. I don't understand that. But God does. And He'll... he'll Restore to us the years the locusts have eaten. We know that. And then chapter, and then verse 28, this is the best known part, the part that is quoted in the, in the New Testament. Verse 28 says, 
And it shall come, come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is quoted in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, when the people of Jerusalem hear the, the early Christians, that first Christian band, all out preaching in different languages, and they come running in that city, swollen from the, from the holiday, all the pilgrims there, and they come running to that place to hear what's going on. And then they start asking, what is going on? And some of them say, well, these, these people are drunk. And Peter steps up and says, don't you know what it says in Joel? And he quotes this verse. Because that was the beginning of a new relationship between God and human beings where we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Peter says that's what Joel was talking about. Not only is God going to restore the years the locusts have eaten, but He's going to give us a new power to accomplish things on earth. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and note, the Spirit here, it belongs to the sons and the daughters, the old men, the young men, the, the slaves, the free. The Holy Spirit is not uh, elitist. He'll come to anybody who wants Him. And, and let's... I don't know that I need to say this. 50 years ago, I definitely would have needed to say this, but I'll say it anyway. And that is, the Holy Spirit is not just for Pentecostal Christians. It's not just for charismatics. It's not just for people who believe everybody speaks in tongues. The Holy Spirit is a gift to all of us. Now, we may have disagreements with our Pentecostal brothers on some of the things, but the Holy Spirit belongs to all of us. And any Baptist or any other kind of Christian that ignores the Holy Spirit's work in our lives ignores what the Bible says about Him, you're missing out on such a treasure. So the Holy Spirit comes to dwell, and that's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And that's the beginning of a new age. I mean, from now on, let's go on and read verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Let me just cut in and say, that's common language whenever you talk about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. That whole language of sun going dark and moon turning to blood. Uh, if you hear there's a blood moon on the news, don't get excited. Okay? I mean, let, let that TV preacher sell his books. That's, that's, you know, he'll answer to God for that someday. This is just an ancient way of saying things are going to happen. The... Things are going to change, and you'll know it. You want to know when the sun grew dark? The day Jesus died. Remember that. That's, that's, uh, that is the most important fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, verse 32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is quoted in Romans. So here you go. God is saying a day is coming when everybody, Jew, Gentile, no matter what their sin, no matter what their status, all who call upon my name will be saved. And that's the age we live in now. Isn't it good to live in the age of grace? So finally, the last chapter, the last section also, is the judgment against the nations of the world. Verse 1 of chapter 3, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Now, it's likely that this is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. But when it says Valley of Jehoshaphat, just understand there's no geographical place with that name, and there never has been. The name Jehoshaphat, it's the name of a Judean king, but it's also a name that means God judges. So he's saying it's the Valley of Judgment. And we're going to see he gives it a different name later on. His point is all the nations of the world will, will answer to God. This is, this is something you see sometimes in the prophets. Most of the time the prophets are talking to the people about their own sins. But every once in a while, and we'll see it next week that Amos does it too, he says, don't you worry about those Egyptians because I've got, I've got them on my list. They're, they're coming. Their day is coming. Don't you worry about those Edomites, those Moabites, those Philistines or, or whoever. I'm going to take care of them. It's not your job to worry about what they're doing. I will judge them. This past week I was reading... Uh, in my quiet time, it, it directed me to Psalm 37. And it said, don't be envious of the evil because they're going to face judgment. Man, that's good advice. And it, and it, and it reminds me, we, we, we waste so much time getting mad at, at non-Christians for acting the way they do. And God's like, I, I'll take care of it. It's not, you don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of the judgment when it's time to judge. For us, we need to understand for people like the Israelites or the Jews at this time, this was especially good news. And none, none of us have ever lived under oppression. We've never lived in a, in a time where a foreign land had dominated our country and was mistreating us. But lots of people have. And when you're in that position and you hear God's going to judge the evil, you rejoice because that means I'm going to get free. That means my, my, I'm going to get justice. And that's what God is telling the Jews here. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. That's language that gets picked up again by the book of Revelation and also by Julia Ward Howe. You know, uh, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Great, great hymn. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. See, he gives it a different name. The valley of decision, or the, the, that's not their decision, it's God's decision. The valley of judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Now let's close it out. Let's look at verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never pass through it, never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Romans 9 through 11, those three chapters, they talk about a day when Israel is coming back to her Messiah, that God is going to bring Israel back. I don't believe that means that every Jewish person will be saved, but that the, the Jewish people themselves Right now, just a fragment, just a tiny fragment, believe in Jesus. Someday they will come back into the kingdom of God through Christ. And we look forward to that day. And I think that's 
That's what this is talking about. Someday, my people are going to come back. Jerusalem will be holy again. And on that day, some exciting things are going to happen. Three things he mentions. All those hardships and shortages will be no more. You'll never again go to the grocery store and find no toilet paper, right? <laughs> there will be plenty to eat and plenty to drink and plenty to wear and plenty of everything we need. Number two, your enemies will be out of the picture. When he mentions Egypt and Edom, those aren't the only bad countries in the world, but think about it. Egypt was a country that, they, that had enslaved the people and down through the centuries had threatened them. Edom was their neighbor. I mean, literally right across the Jordan River from them. And so they were constantly bickering with Edom. And so God is saying, your enemy's far away and your enemy's right next door. They're going to be gone. You won't have to worry about them anymore. That's the second promise. And the third promise, God will dwell with His people. And that's the best promise of all. So let me just close with this. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing that we're not awake for surgery. Can you imagine? I actually had a friend who was having a, a procedure done, and he woke up in the middle of his procedure. Uh, and he was so dazed, he didn't know what was going on. But he remembered later. He remembered waking up and saying, hey, what's going on? And the doctor said, oh, this is what I'm doing right now. And he kind of showed him what he was doing. And uh, he could actually see what the doctor was doing. He kind of picked up his head. And then after a while, he went back to sleep. And I just think, if, we, if you were awake during surgery and, and yourself, you'd be terrified because of what you'd see. And, and I mentioned that not to scare you, but life sometimes feels like we're, in the, we're awake in the middle of surgery, doesn't it? We don't, all we see is there's a mess and it doesn't look good. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know what God's doing with that mess and how He's putting things back together, how He's, how he's putting us back together even better than before. So we can rest easy. We can put our head back down and trust. All we have to do is come to Him. That's all He requires. Stop running and come to Him. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, it's timely that we read this in this moment because we, we experience a lot of stressful things in our world, and especially right now. Thank You, Lord, for the words of Joel that remind us that You're at work, that You are sovereign, that You cannot be defeated and that your work always leads to salvation and redemption. We pray that you would teach us to trust you more and help us, Lord, to behave the way we should in good times and in bad. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.